This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to tell you whether or not UFC 249 should happen. Speaking of which, we'll talk to Extreme Couture coach Eric Nixick about getting big Francis Ngannou ready for his fight against Jair Zinho Rosenstruck. And then speaking of that fight, should there be an interim heavyweight title belt attached to it? We'll get to all of those right here on the Luke Thomas Show, which airs every weekday this week at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. So let me get into this first topic, if I may. I think this is where the show has to start, right? This is where we have to kick things off. This is where we can't go forward until we establish this, I think is what I would say, which is, what is my position on UFC 249 in terms of May 9th? Because as everyone knows, I was adamantly against it taking place on April 18th. And the answer to that question in a broad overview is, I don't hate it. I don't hate it, and I don't think the show should be stopped. That doesn't mean there aren't questions, and that doesn't mean there aren't risks, but we are not in the same place that we were in April 18th, and there are some very important reasons why we are not, and they deserve to be acknowledged. So there's some good and there's some bad. Let's start with the good. As I mentioned, this is not the same scenario as back in April. Back in April, In terms of the virus itself, deaths were increasing day over day over day, and the lockdown measures that the various local and state and federal authorities were implementing, they made a lot of sense. Today, certainly we're in a bad place, but at least in terms of the curve, it has plateaued, for lack of a better description. That is different. Back on April 18th, the Ultimate Fighting Championship wanted to go to California but they wanted to have their show not be regulated. Well, I mean, they didn't want it, but they couldn't have their show, I should say, regulated by the California State Athletic Commission because they weren't regulating any shows. They had shut down for the entire month of April. They're shut down for the entire month of May. And maybe beyond that, we'll have to see. So they went to Tachi Palace, a Native American territory, and were going to be in a position where they had to self-regulate. They're not doing that this time. They're in the state of Florida. Now, to be clear, Florida is not exactly known as a hotbed of leading best practices for regulations, but the state is overseeing this. It has the imprimatur of the state. It absolutely does. The mayor of Jacksonville, Florida, has signed off on it. The governor of Florida, whatever your impressions of him, he has signed off on it. The commission, whatever your impressions of them, they have signed off on it. That matters. That actually makes a difference, and it's not merely a, a difference, well, because the state's sanctioning and it's not. There is a shared responsibility here that happens that makes the oversight a little bit better. That is different. Last time, UFC didn't even want to tell you where they were holding an event until the New York Times reported it, and then later on they confirmed it. This time, they're telling you, we're going to the Star Veterans uh, Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, whatever the full name of it is. They're not hiding any of it. That is different. That is transparent. That deserves to be acknowledged. That's real. Um, In terms of the country itself, I mentioned that the curve had kind of, uh, it's not dropped, but it's plateaued. And I think that makes a difference. I saw some reporting last night from Nate Silver of 538. 
And he was saying that in addition to the weather sort of getting nicer and people getting outside, and so this will depend on your part of the country, but certainly here in Washington, D.C. and parts of New York and um, even in the south and southeast, people are wanting to get outside. The weather is, is quite beautiful. But beyond that, there was some reporting, I think, done by Gallup. Early in March, they had said, when do you expect all of this to be over? And of course, your responses vary. But a lot of the responses said about now is when the majority of most Americans thought this would kind of be over. Now, a lot of you might be saying, well, that's naive. That's not real. And that's true. But that's where people's heads are at. They want to get outside. They want to do it. And however inadvisable, some of us still might be, believe that to be. And by the way, I do think there will be some cases, you know, not nationwide per se, but in different hotspots along the country where we have to go back to more lockdown measures as uh, outbreaks happen. I think that is going to be a degree of inevitability for the, our lives in the next year or two until there's some kind of a treatment or vaccine that is created. But I'm just pointing out, dude, people want to get outside. They want this to be over with. And you might say, we're tolerating an unhealthy degree of death and destruction. Yeah, there's a good, a good reason to think a lot of Americans do that. We have an unhealthy obsession with cars in this country. Right? A lot of people die because of poor municipal planning. Think about how many times you have to drive just to drive to go anywhere. You have to drive to go to the mall. You have to drive to go get your phone service. You have to drive to go to, to the bars, for crying out loud, to go to a restaurant. You can't walk anywhere hardly in this country in a lot of places. And that causes a lot of unnecessary deaths. We just kind of tolerate it. So there's a couple of different attitudes factoring in, into the situation now that's going to push this in a direction that I don't think um, resisting is going to do a whole lot of good, at least at the present moment. Now, the UFC still is not being transparent in totality about their safety plan. And there's some things about it that we don't necessarily love. We have reason to believe that they're going to send tests to people before they travel. COVID-19 tests, of course. Once they get there, I'm not all that worried about them. They're going to get swabs. They're going to get antibody tests. They're going to have their own rooms. They're going to be isolated. Uh, there's not going to be any audience in the arena for these shows. Of course, there's just going to be essential personnel. There's going to be social distancing employed. Even the commentators aren't sitting together. Once they get there, I'm honestly not too worried about them. There's a question about whether or not they have tests for them when they get home. Because as you know, airlines are still a vector for this kind of condition. So it's not a perfect scenario. But here's what I'm pointing out. We're not on April 18th again. It's not the scenario. It's not perfect. And they are running a risk, but it is hard to know exactly what that risk is. And there just appears to be a lot of momentum in place for folks to want to make this happen. And I should point out, unlike last time, the Association of Ringside Physicians had prior to the April 18th scheduled UFC 249 gotten out there and said there should be no combat sports events. The Association of Ringside Physicians issued a, a response recently saying, done under safe uh, best practices, they can go forward. That is completely different than it was last time. Totally different. So the question of, should UFC 249 take place, is a very complicated answer. I mean, should it? I mean, it's not essential in the way that having a bank open or a pharmacy open is essential. Okay, it's not essential in that way, but if fighters work, they get paid. As I mentioned, they're going to get tested either before and certainly when they show up to Jacksonville, they're going to be quarantined. They're going to be well taken care of. It should be noted 
that Florida has not had the outbreak that some of us, including me, had feared. There's a great report yesterday in the Wall Street Journal showing even if Governor Ron DeSantis had not been a leading factor in social distancing in terms of enforcing it, businesses took it upon themselves. The citizens of Florida took it upon themselves. Um, uh, Local mayors and other uh, politicians and local leaders took it upon themselves. And it turns out it kind of worked. There are some hot spots in Florida, but the UFC is not going to a hot spot in Florida. Uh, Many hospitals around the country have purposely cut out um, elective surgeries and other kinds of uh, medical interventions that would take up hospital space. So the hospitals are wide open. A lot of the scenarios that we had worried about are not in place. But as I mentioned, there are still risks involved. And if they get this wrong, they could get this wrong for a lot of folks. So I don't want folks to assume that everything is perfect heading into Saturday because it is not. But here's what I can be sure of. The risks relative to April 18th are massively reduced. Massively reduced. And the momentum behind this cannot be stopped. So we have to pay attention to the challenges and we have to pay attention to the risks. But we should take at least a little bit of comfort knowing that we are not back at April 18th and we're not back at April 18th for some very good reasons. This week on World of Basketball, European coaching legend and former San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Ettore Messina dropped by to talk about whether or not he's surprised by the immediate impact that Luka Doncic has had on the NBA. I thought he was going to be a good player in the NBA, honestly. I could not ever imagine that he could have had such an impact right off the bat right. in terms of producing triple-doubles like, you know, peanuts. I think that the, the key thing in his career has been that Coach Carlisle gave him the ball and put him at the point guard. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora. We are back. Luke Thomas Show. Let's get to our first guest of the day. We are joined now by a coach uh, over at Extreme Couture. He's going to be cornering a lot of folks, but let's start with the biggest one. Francis Ngannou takes on Jair Zinho Rosenstruck on Saturday at UFC 249. And Francis's coach joins us now. It is Eric Nixick. Hi, Eric. How are you? What's up, Luke? How are you, brother? I'm uh, delighted to talk to you, Eric. I want to talk to you for a while here. So let's get to it. Before we talk about anything else, how is life in Las Vegas for folks who could be listening all over? How, how, how are you dealing with things out there? Um, you know, I, I've been staying busy. So uh, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in the fact that I have my gym and a, and a small group of guys that are keeping me occupied. So my day to day, um, really hasn't changed a whole lot. Like, I've been coming to the gym pretty much every day and, uh, spending about three, four hours in here, whether if it, it's just, uh, office stuff or working around the gym, but mostly, mostly training and getting the guys ready. So, I mean, for the most part, other than what's going on on the outside, everything's been pretty normal for me here. Still, the amount of changes that have taken place for Francis and Dan's fight came together kind of late, too. We'll talk about Dan just a moment. Let's focus on Francis. I mean, it's and everyone's dealt with it. Oh, you're going to fight on April 18th. And now you're not. Now you're going to fight on May 9th. And it's kind of extended the camp. So in terms of the programming of the camp and how long it has extended things, give us a sense of some of the challenges you guys have had in getting together a world class fighter for this big opportunity. Well, uh, automatically, you know, it's it's going to be bodies just having comparable bodies to come in that are that are heavyweights really and that are good enough to go with them when we need them 
and on the, on the flip side of that coin is we have to get guys that we trust that we know that they're staying within isolation because, you know, one hiccup or, or something goes wrong and then one of us gets COVID, then, you know, we're not cornering or we're not fighting. So we had to be very selective on the guys that we brought in here. So really Francis, and I just sat down and wrote down a list of three or four guys that we felt were, uh, were good to have in the camp. And we kind of built off of that and then figured out, um, you know, with the, with the cancellations and everything else, man, it was almost trying to get back on the horse again and, you know, re-motivate and get back in and do the things that we have to do, but changing things up a lot making it fun. Um, going outside of the gym and going to the park and doing things outside of this kind of realm where he's just probably just like, man, I've been here for 14 weeks now. So just trying to reinnovate, uh, just make it, just make it fun for him again. So that's been, that's been a little bit of the challenge, but other than that, man, we, we come in and get our job done. You know, I, we uh, heard from Justin Gaethje and he was saying when the fight was extended three weeks, he was unhappy about it. And I, at first I was like, that's kind of crazy. Why would he be unhappy? It's more time to get ready because he had a short notice time to get ready when Habib fell out. And then he was saying he had just structured that little time he had to peak at that moment and they had to restructure. Has that restructuring of the peak been a bit of the challenge? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and we've seen that. We've seen like the, 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 where you're right there, where you're supposed to be during fight week. And then you see that peak and we're like, oh, we're right on top. And then you get a cancellation. So um, and, and then the, then the next week, it's kind of like, like, just like rolling a boulder, you know, it takes a little bit to get that thing going <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have the momentum again. Yeah. So yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of challenges. Um, to be quite honest with you, I think it's about perception. And if, if I'm down and out about it, then so is he, if he's down and out, but I'm up and I got to pick him up, then at least one of us is trying to make it better. And, and we can't, we can't be negative about it. So it's just about our perception and how we handle the situation. That's all we can really uh, control. And the only thing about this, because, the, the, I mean, who's to belabor the point in anyway, but I have to ask just the same. Uh, I don't suspect you'd be doing it if you weren't, but uh, your level of comfort in terms of health and safety to travel across the country from Las Vegas to Florida and then engage in these, you know, all the different things that happens in a fight week. Granted, a very different fight week. Still, your level of comfort with the safety. Um, yeah, I mean, just I haven't really thought a whole lot about it as much as I should. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just kind of what we signed up for. And... I made a commitment to him and my fighters just as much as they made a commitment to me, you know, sat and talked with my family and let them know some of the precautions that we're going to take. And if they're comfortable with me going and, you know, my wife and three kids, uh, all of them support what we're doing and, you know, they want to see our, our guys come out on top. So, you know, that, that gave me a little bit of comfort knowing that they had my back with it too. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is just a um, inherent risk that we're going to have to take and, and hopefully come out okay on this. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting. Let's get to the, the fight itself. Oh, man, this is amazing. I want to first focus in on Big Francis, because here's been the kind of interesting part. He had, a, as you know, I mean, I'm not bashing him. Not a great fight against uh, uh, Derek Lewis when he came back. And there are all these questions and he seems to have fixed it. Here's the problem, though. He's just blowing through Curtis Blades. He blew through Cain Velasquez, and it's like, I want to believe he's gotten better. And clearly he's a formidable task for anyone. But you don't act if you're me. On the outside, you don't actually know how good he's gotten. From your perspective, who's there every day, what have you seen in terms of the specifics of his technical evolution that gives you confidence for his chances beyond what he's already capable of on Saturday? Technically, I think he's just he's he's always investing in getting better in certain little areas that he thinks that can uh, maximize his strengths as, as a striker. You know, and and it's it's a day to day process with that guy. He always comes in and wants to try new things. You know, he actually, uh, about a month ago, he's like, Hey, show me some stuff you and Uriah Hall were, were working on. You know, hmm. he, he doesn't have the same athleticism, but 
again, like he's still very young in this sport. So for him, it's just every day is like a new little challenge that he wants to kind of take on. Um, really, and to me, moreover, it's just been his mindset. You know, he's willing to kind of jump in that deep waters and, and get better at the areas that we know that that he needed help in. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when you get, like, let's say somebody like a Demi and Maya, right? And he's sort of gone back to his roots. But a lot of times I'll talk to fighters like that and I'll ask him, what has been the favorite thing you have learned outside of your your natural inclination to, to go to, in his case, jujitsu. And no, the, the answers will always differ. Usually it's the exact opposite. Has Francis sort of taken to something, we know he's got huge power, but beyond leveling people like that, has he taken to any part of training that's something he wasn't just automatically good at? Uh, his MMA cardio rounds, like they're, they're rough. And I know you see me do them before and I usually do them like Danny again, my other fighters. And this has been a camp where, you know, I, I kind of eased them in the MMA cardio rounds. We do them on Saturdays. We call them sicko Saturdays. And it's basically where we emulate a fight. Um, but there's a lot more to it, right? Like I want him to, to hear our voices under duress. I want, to, I want him to understand the red lines within a fight, where, where fight IQ wise, where the good places are to rest, things of that sort. But, you know, we talked about this and we looked at the, the Stipe fight. We looked at the Derek Lewis fight because I think it's important, Luke, to to check under the bed, man, and see who that boogeyman is and look that fucker in the face every once in a while and, and know like, hey, man, I got these, these are things that I got to beat. But the, the, the beautiful thing about that is, is once you start looking at that boogeyman in the face, you kind of it kind of turns into your ally, right? Like once you can kind of start harnessing that thing. So that's what I saw the most out of him in the 14 week camp that he really enjoyed these cardio rounds. He really enjoyed putting all that extra work in because like I told him, I said, when you sign on the contract, man, it's for a 15 minute fight. Now, granted, yes, we love getting out there soon, but you should get every minute out of that fight that you can because it's cage experience, you know? And so that's, I think he's kind of, he's, he's kind of bought into that whole thing. And it's been, it's been nice. Like we did some rounds on Saturday and he only had to do three and we were done. And then he said, no, let's do two more. So we did championship rounds after that. And that, hmm. and that's impressive to me. For a big guy like that, uh, Eric Nixick joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. How heavy is Francis right now? Give or take. Uh, we're 256. Jeez, that's a big 250. Good Lord. That is a, that yeah. is a Clydesdale. <laughs> if ever up. there was one. Yeah. He's, he's cut up right now too. Like he's looking good. Uh, does he do any weights by the way? Like, or what does he do for, okay. Conditioning. What does he do for strength? So we did, uh, so the PI sent me over every day. So we were doing Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, our strength and conditioning here in the gym. So the PI would send me the, the, his workouts, but while we had those cancellations, during those times, he was actually doing like workouts with myself and Brad Tavares, where it was just more like just like football. We were doing power lifts. So, you know, that it was it was kind of fun because he's so strong but so goofy, like trying to, you know, use dumbbells and everything else. He just he's just not used to that sort of lifting. And then uh, he's like, yeah, I, I kind of like this, but I'm really sore, you know. So we were, we were mixing things up for him in the weight room to keep it interesting. But yeah, he doesn't hit a whole lot of weights, but we do a lot of like you know, functional movement and stuff like that. All right, so let's talk about his opponent, Rosenstruck. Boy, he's a weird one, right? Because he has, a, you know, what, 80-something or nearly 80 kickboxing fights at a pretty high level. And he's got this Fedor vibe where you look at him when the fights are being announced or, you know, when Bruce Buffer's doing his bit, and he's, he looks like he's waiting for the bus. Um, so how, when you assess him as a challenge, what do you see as the predominant threats? Well, obviously a very seasoned striker. That's, that's the obvious, but just like you said, his calmness and his ability to stay under fire, like you never really see him panic, even in bad positions. When you saw him in the junior Albini fight, you know, he, he took his back, he had him in side control. He had him in bad spots, 
granted, he maybe wasn't doing all the right things on the ground, but he, he had a calmness about him too, that he felt like he was safe. You know, um, in the Alistair Overeem fight, you never really saw him panic, even up to the last minute. So I think that's a great assessment by your part. And the dude's got a great chin. He really does. You've seen him take some power shots. In the Albini fight, he ate a big overhand. You know, you watched him in the uh, Alistair fight. Alistair hit him with some really good shots that fight. Didn't seem to phase him too much at all. So, um, you know, this is going to be a tough challenge for us, man. We're, we're, we're prepared for that. Yeah, this is why I like this fight. It's because, listen... Francis has knocked out, you know, Francis knocked out Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem is the greatest kickboxer to do heavyweight and uh, kickboxing at the same time. But he's the only one who's ever won a, you know, world MMA title in Strike Force and then also in K1. It's never happened before. Uh, at the same time, you know, Rosenstruck beat him too. But here, here's my point. It's like Rosenstruck is this guy who can counter-strike if he needs to. He's slick. He doesn't overreact. He's not nearly as good in all the other parts of the game as Francis. But it's like Francis can use his big power, I think, against virtually anyone. But there might come a time in this fight where it doesn't put him away enough. And then there has to be a second gear. Would you agree with that assessment? 100%. And that's the thing, too. Like, you have to understand that he might still be, you know, you don't want to you hit him with your best shot. You've seen that before. Guys will hit guys with their best shot and be like, oh, this dude's still there. Right? Like, usually that drops somebody. So, you can't get frustrated. What the analogy I just kept giving him was like, you got to think of this dude as just a big piece of rock and you just got to keep chipping away at this guy. You know, don't expect to go out and hit a home run. Expect to try to break him down. That's what we have to do. Fair enough. Uh, before, well, we still have some time left on the board. Let me ask you about some other fights on the card. I'm looking forward to the main event. That's a weird one, right? Because it's uh, two guys who are very, very talented, very durable, which makes a prediction hard to come by. Are you leaning any direction there? Oh, man, I'm not. But if I were, it would obviously be with Gaethje and uh, Coach Trevor. You know, Trevor Whitman and I are pretty close. And, you know, I, I lean on him quite a bit for uh, advice and, and things of that sort. So I'll definitely be pulling for those guys. And, you know, Tony's been in here numerous times as well. Great guy. But, you know, my heart's with Gaethje. So uh, and I just, I, you know, how, how can you not love that guy? He's one of the best guys to watch. When you turn on the fight, you know you're in for some fireworks. And then the, the co-main with Henry Cejudo and Dominic Cruz, it's so strange because... Cruz is unranked, hasn't fought in nearly four years. But if you hadn't seen him come back against Mizugaki and then ultimately Dillashaw, you would say he has no chance. I don't know if I can say he has no chance, Eric. Does he? I agree, man. The guy's the guy's unbelievable at what he does. Uh, the big thing for me in this particular fight, Luke, is how does Henry find a stylistic matchup to 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 use for sparring in such a short amount of time to emulate what dominant Cruz does and, and and i don't care if you have eight weeks or 10 weeks you really don't find those types of fighters man and so to try to figure out his patterns and what he likes to do um and just like the herky jerky motion and the off beats guys one of a kind in what he does when you really break him down so i think that's going to be the the interesting fact of, of the of the game plans and what they come up with for each for each camp really uh, and last but not least, as uh, you mentioned uh, off air, if I may, you, you have to go to Jacksonville, but you're not going to come home and then go back because Dan Ige is coming the following week. Another one of your understudies. You know, he signed a new four fight deal. I said congratulations to him because I think he's earned it. You know, what's funny about Dan. When I first saw Dan fight, I thought, wow, he's good. But, you know, virtually everyone who fights in the UFC is good. I didn't know exactly beyond that what there was there. And he has shown to be quite the talent. But this is quite the fight. Edson Barboza. He doesn't go away quietly for anybody. I mean, Justin Gaethje put him away, but that was, you know, an unbelievable performance by him. And he's retooled things. He's down at American Top Team now. 
What would you say is the principal task of Dan in getting past someone like Edson, who has fought the very best of the best? We're, we're going to have to be right in his face. You know, um, I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have uh, put a game plan together for Kevin Lee when we fought him. So I have a little bit of knowledge. Obviously, it's a different fight. Kevin and Kevin and, and Dan are, are very uh, different fighters. But the one thing that uh, that's, that we do have in common is is Dan likes to put the pressure on people. You know, you have to be right in this guy's face. If you allow any distance with Barboza, just like we saw in round three versus Kevin, man, he can put your lights out. He can he can wobble you. He can drop you. So you, you have to make sure make sure you stay on your fi- uh, p's and q's and your fight IQ the whole fight with this guy. You know, so it's a very, very dangerous fight, but I think it's a very favorable fight matchup wise for us. Uh, last thing, did you watch Thor's 501 kilogram deadlift over the weekend? I did. I seen that. Yeah. Dr. Yeah, Hightower posted it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, let me ask you, they now are saying, I think they've signed the papers. Eddie Hall, who had the 500 kilo deadlift, who's I think six, three and you know, 8,000 pounds or whatever he is. They're going to fight Thor who's six, nine and four forty. Uh, who wins that one, Coach? Give me the battle of the behemoths there. Yeah, I got to go with anybody named Thor. That's uh, <laughs> anybody with, with Thor in their name or Bear. Like, I'm going with those guys. <laughs> Plus, he's huge, my guy. He was a basketball player before he was a power lifter. Yeah, man. Think about that or, vertical. Yeah, well, the strongman anyway. Uh, all right, Eric. Well, we wish you nothing but safe travels. Thank you so much. Cannot wait for Saturday. And I know you guys have put in the work, so time to show it. And I know you will. Thank you so much. And uh, can't wait to see Saturday. Thanks, guys, man. Good talk to you, Luke. I'll see you soon. The Ock and Barack Show. It's either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences. That might not happen for another year. The big fighters like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names, are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that? And eventually it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ock and Barack Show, weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern, only on Sirius XM. Fight Nation Channel 156. On this card on uh, Saturday, UFC 249, you have Francis Ngannou taking on Jairzinho Rosenstruck, a heavyweight contest that surely will thrill us all. I, I've, I've, however long it lasts, I suspect. Um, although if it goes a little bit longer, heavyweights tend to be a little bit less interesting, but certainly early it, it stands to reason. You have incredible kickboxer pedigree in kickboxing pedigree, excuse me, in Rosenstruck, 80 plus fights or so. And then you have in the case of Francis, just sort of this savant and uh, in growing force in MMA, certainly with brutal punching power. It should be quite interesting. Should that, should that fight have an interim title on it? That's sort of the question I have for you guys. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Should that fight be given interim heavyweight title status? And I know that what most people are going to say is no. I know most people are going to disagree with that and say, no way. There is no reason to do that. The person who wins that, even if it's Big Francis, is not your interim champ. You're conferring status upon them that they don't deserve why would we do that? And frankly, I understand that. I, 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 don't, I actually don't even think that's a bad argument. I actually think it's a pretty good argument. It's a pretty good reason to not just hand out a title to somebody. Can you really say if Rosenstruck wins that he's your interim champ? I mean, okay, he'd have some nice wins, including over Overeem and Big Francis, but is that enough to be your interim champ? And by the way, the champ is not injured. 
So why would we even consider this? Well, I mean, here's the problem, right? You have Stipe Miocic, who has said, as long as the pandemic is happening, he's not fighting. Now, does that mean when the governor in, in, in Ohio, uh, Mike DeWine, a Republican, does that mean when he lifts any kind of shelter in place, stay at home, uh, or relaxes any social distancing guidelines, that will then give him the go ahead to start? Maybe. Uh, it's not exactly clear what it, he means when he says, you know, during the pandemic, he's not going to compete. I mean, it sounds sort of obvious, but like the pandemic's not going to end. I mean, the COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon without a vaccine or a cure. It, you know, there might be herd immunity at some point. Um, you know, it'll, it'll come and it'll go. It'll get maybe better during the summer and then come roaring back in the winter. Like, what does that mean when the pandemic is over? It's just not very clear to me. I don't think it's very clear to a lot of people. And then on the other side, you have D.C. Now, D.C. is not Daniel Cormier. He's not going to fight past 2020. Right? And he's said he's only going to fight Stipe Miocic. Add on top of that, I talked to my friend uh, Brian Campbell, who spoke to Miocic this week. Or last week, I should say. And Miocic told him, like, yeah, you know, he's really interested in the winner of Francis versus... Um, Jair Zinho, so-so on Big Daniel. It's like, let me see if I understand this. You have a fight happening that the champion himself is looking at as a number one contender's bout. I'm not saying the UFC is, but the champ is. Couldn't imagine who else it might be. That if, if there's any fight that you could point to at heavyweight and say, which one of these guys should get a title shot after this? This is the one. You have the champion saying he's more interested in that than the trilogy fight with Daniel Cormier. You have him saying he's not even going to fight anyway until the pandemic's over. God knows what that means and when that is. And then you have Cormier saying, you know, I turned back into a pumpkin on 2021. And then you begin to realize, well, wait a second. If you grant a interim title shot here and you do that, the person who wins heading into the title fight after that does so getting pay-per-view points, meaning they get a lot more money. And it could be a substantial amount of more money. I, I had this debate with Brian Campbell earlier today, and he was saying, no, it devalues titles, blah, blah, blah. I bring this up all the time. The UFC has said in depositions that the title doesn't actually mean anything other than it's a trophy they give to the best fighter of the night. It doesn't actually confer status upon you because remember in boxing, it's the sanctioning bodies who control it in UFC and in MMA. It, it, there's a law against this in boxing, but not in MMA. Believe it or not, it's true. Whether promotion can hold its own titles. You couldn't do that in boxing. It, it, literally illegal in boxing, but you can do it in MMA. Uh, they've already said that. So let me see if I understand this. They've already told us that the title, we, we, like we confer status upon it as media, as fans. But they're telling us it doesn't actually have any real status. And you're telling me that the one truly real thing about it is chances of the person who holds the interim title shot will get a guaranteed real title shot after that, right? And they'll go into that unification bout making a lot more money ostensibly than they would otherwise. They'll get more Reebok money and they'll get pay-per-view points. Tell me again why this is a bad idea. And the response is, oh, well, let's find another way to pay them. 
Let's find another way to get them the money that they deserve. We all agree when it comes to top-level athletes at the highest level. The UFC has a great middle class, but in terms of its highest level, these are the most underpaid athletes in sports. About that, there can be no doubt. And this is the only mechanism that I can see that can get them paid. So show me how you'd get there. Show me how we get to that finish line based on existing mechanisms or mechanisms you can reasonably demonstrate will exist with a little bit of effort. Show me how we get there. Because for the life of me, I don't get it. Whenever I debate someone on this, they always say to me the exact same thing. No, it devalues titles. You know, exercise leverage with your next contract negotiation. Dude, what leverage? excuse me, what leverage do they have? They don't have any leverage. This is a fantasy that people cook up in their heads because they want to preserve the, the, the value of not having, you know, an alphabet soup full of different titles like they do in boxing. Okay, I understand the need to not want to do that, but you're talking about boxing, right? The, okay, boxing. The same sport where it's A-list fighters make oodles of money. To me, it's like, how can you look the winner of Francis versus Rosenstruck in the face, knowing in all likelihood it is a number one contender's bout, and say to them, I don't want to put you in a position to make more money, knowing you're chronically underpaid. If you want to make that argument to them, by all means, knock yourself out. I don't want to make that argument. I said this about the, uh, the, the, the main event on the card. That's for an interim title, and I get that you, want, you wouldn't want to have two interim title bouts on one card. I get it. Everyone is allergic to the idea that fighters should make more money. It's the only mechanism we have and nobody wants to exercise it. Well, I want to exercise it. I think it's great. Not great, but it's all we have. We don't have anything else. So until we have something else, what is the objection? (laughs) Or how about this? What's the better way? Show Show me how we get to where I'm talking about where we do it without the interim title. Show me, what is the path? Because for the life of me, I don't understand it. I don't love interim titles. I'm just telling you, if you don't give them one, they're not gonna get much money. And these guys have a short window and everyone calls on this show all the time. And this is what I mean by talking about paying a bunch of lip service to like, oh, we wanna make sure fighters get more money. Well, this is how you do it. This is how it is done. What's the other way? There is none. So stop denying fighters the money that they're frankly owed. Unless you have a better idea. Maybe you do. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.